I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So how does someone come to Canada, tell Canadian immigration officials, oh, they only make about $40,000 a year in their job, and then start buying real estate that is worth tens of millions of dollars? It is a wild story, and unfortunately, one of those ones that you feel like could only happen here, right? Well, the person who is writing all about this is our next guest. It's Jared Ferry. He's co-written about it for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Jared, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Sammy. First off, tell me a bit about this project. What What is it all about? Uh, you mean the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project? Yes. This is an international investigative journalism organization. Okay, so obviously you dig into stories like this. Now tell me about this this Vancouver connection here with this person that you took a look into. Sure. So uh, this, this came up as one of the more than 1,000 exhibits of evidence for the Cullen Commission. I stumbled across it while I was going through these uh, exhibits, and it really stuck out to me because it was titled A Case Study of Money Laundering, but it had been entirely redacted. So I set out to find out who the person was behind uh, this, this case study. Um, it took a few months, um, but we managed to identify the fellow. Um, he's uh, now a Vancouver resident. His name is Wun Kai Chen. Um, he was previously known as Zijun Chen. And he had come to Canada in uh, 2006 with his family. And um, after that, and as you said in the intro, he had declared a rather modest income. And then a few years later, uh, tens of millions of dollars started pouring into his Canadian accounts. And we managed to determine the alleged source of that money, which was he was involved in uh, property deals with a... um, uh, People's Liberation Army general in China, who was later given a suspended death sentence for corruption. Part of the corruption he was involved in was basically giving out um, military-owned land to property developers. Now, I should mention that Mr. Chen um, denies all allegations of corruption. His lawyer tells us that he uh, he never paid any bribes. He's completely innocent. All this money is legitimate. Really, how is that possible, given what he told Canadian officials versus what he has done with all this money? Well, um, you know, there, there were various signs of, of uh, well, what the bank would determine was suspicious transactions, which would, would lead them to investigate uh, money laundering. So regardless of whether he, he maintains his innocence here, the bank and then Canada's financial regulator, FinTrack, found that the, transa- the transactions that were coming into his accounts were suspicious enough to warrant some investigation. Right. So let's talk about the bank situation there for a second, Jared, because you wrote about how there were numerous banks here that kind of received this money into his accounts. 
Uh, but was it really? How many banks found it suspicious enough to ask him questions about it? Yeah, this is really interesting because um, the the transfers were coming in through a very shady kind of underground banking network based out of Hong Kong, um, and they were coming into accounts that Chen and his family members had in all of the big Canadian banks as well as some small banks and credit unions, as well as some Canadian branches of international banks. Now, the only bank that flagged this to FinTrack, to the regulator, was uh, UBS, which is actually a Swiss bank. All the Canadian banks um, took in millions in transfers, and none of them noticed, or at least none of them flagged them to the regulator. None of them did. So all the Canadian banks didn't think about what was going on with these huge amounts of money that were just coming into this person's account. Yeah, I mean, in in the anti-money laundering departments and banks, there the people are there are people that are meant to look out for these things, and you know there there are red flags for money laundering, and this these particular transactions were found by UBS to be red flags. It was. You know, it was a technique called layering where you have different um, amounts coming in to the same account from different companies. Um, but, it, you know, as I said, it was suspicious enough to them, but apparently the Canadian banks didn't find it suspicious. Hmm. I know this, this kind of plays, Jared, to all the suspicions that so many of us here in BC have, right, about what's been going on with our real estate market and so many other things in the province. So when you have a case like this, like what has happened as a result of this? Like, is there, is there an investigation going on? We're not aware of any investigation going on. Um, we would hope that you know that our story would trigger some interest on the part of officials. Um, Mr. Chen is involved in a court case. Um, he he is trying to stay in Canada and gain citizenship. Um, you know, basically what happened was he came in um, under the Immigrant Investor Program and was uh, granted permanent residency. And then I think some of these allegations came up, and as a result, Canadian immigration officials denied his application for citizenship. He then challenged it. So the, the problem is, is that those those uh, case that court case is sealed. We don't have access to it. So we know that there were questions asked about this, this money, but we don't know exactly what they were. Um, and we don't know if there are ongoing questions being asked. Hmm. Still so many questions there. Listen, Jared, thanks for joining us this morning. All right. Thanks for having me. That's Jared Ferry. Jared is the editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. As you heard him say, that's like an international project involved in digging out stories about organized crime and corruption. One of the stories that they have written about, and you should really check it out, has to do with someone who came to Canada back in 2006 or so, uh, told immigration officials that his salary was about, he made about $40,000 a year except he then started investing. About $32 million worth of a luxury real estate was purchased by this person. And yeah, no wonder that would raise some red flags. Apparently Canadian banks didn't think so. We'll wait to see if more comes out of this story, but that is a fascinating one. You should check that out. It's the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. This is Mornings with Simi. We have been following along with the tragic events in Uvalde, Texas, and what has happened as a result of that. 
Here in Canada, the federal government tabled new gun control legislation. Now, that includes a national freeze on the purchase and the sale of handguns in this country. Meanwhile, in the United States, it's a very different situation, right? They seem to talk about stricter gun laws, but it never seems to actually go anywhere, even after horrible shootings like this one, which we know have happened before. Now, our next guest knows this all too well. Michelle Gay is a teacher, and she lost her daughter in the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Connecticut. She founded an organization as a result called Safe and Sound Schools, and Michelle joins us now. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about your organization? What is Safe and Sound Schools? Yeah, so we are a nonprofit organization that supports schools in preventing, responding to, and recovering from crisis. So obviously that's going to encompass horrific tragedies like this one in Uvalde, um, but that could also mean, you know, natural disasters, um, recovering from, you know, a bus accident in the community, um, a suicide, uh, all different types of things, unfortunately, that our school communities are facing and challenged by on a pretty regular basis. Yeah, I was thinking that too. This is the kind of organization you wish you didn't have to have, right? Truly, truly. So when you heard about what happened in Uvalde, what was your reaction? You know, my first reaction, oddly, um, you would you would think it might be different, but for me, just disbelief. I, I just think, you know, we just don't want to believe that that could be. I'm sure many people felt that way as they were learning about our tragedy unfolding in, in Sandy Hook. But, um, you know, I just found myself trying to say, oh, no, we don't have all the facts. It's not it can't be it can't be this um, again, you know, and then to hear how hauntingly similar uh, this particular tragedy is to our own um, was, you know, was especially uh, difficult for for many of us. Michelle, it must have been devastating for you after that Sandy Hook shooting happened. Did you? Did you think that things were going to change? Because it did feel like for a while there that it, that it might, that that might be the kind of catalyst for real change. You know, I remember sitting in the parking lot that day, just trying to wrap my head around what I was learning had happened in our community and, and really not even yet understanding or knowing that my youngest daughter had been killed in the attacks. Um, but I, my my thought right away was, um, the conversations are going to start all over again. The you know the calls for stricter gun regulation and new laws and all of those speeches that we have seen time and time again, all of that's going to start up again. Um, but surely this time people will see that there are some very practical things we can be doing in our communities. You know, securing our campuses, for example. You know, teaching and training staff to be more aware, to be more vigilant. Um, I thought naively at the time that that would be, you know, something that everybody would understand immediately. Um, but it's been, it's been a challenge. Um, we've seen incredible progress in schools around the states. Um, a, a, a lot of school communities really did, you know, look at what happened in our community and make some some substantive changes in in how they were preparing for and responding to and, and planning for that recovery phase. But um, but still, uh, many many have chosen you know not to to have to continue to look for those kind of quick fixes and um, the kinds of things, unfortunately, that um, that really don't serve our our kids and communities in these instances. What would you say to the parents of the Uvalde victims? 
You know, I think the first and most important thing to do is to let them know that we're with them, we support them, and um, and we're all ready to listen and, and take the lead from them. I, one of the most difficult things for our family and, and for so many others in Sandy Hook was how uh, other people were creating a narrative or a conversation or, or even, you know, doing things in honor of of our children, of our teachers, um, really kind of, you know, taking over the conversation and making assumptions, frankly, about, about, um, you know, what we wanted and what would be most helpful to our family. So I, I do think it's really important that as we, um, as we all collectively grieve, um, and just, and grapple with the shock and disbelief of what has taken place in, in, you know, a small little Texas town, to real people, to a real community, we we stop and listen to to how they want to move forward and let mm-hmm. them let them make the decision about how their loved ones are honored. Do you think, Michelle, that these kinds of horrible situations can be prevented? Can we stop these from happening? We can. We absolutely can. Um, the trick is um, getting people to stop and. I don't want to say put their emotions aside because emotions are very important to to the work that we do here. Our kids, uh, the safety of our communities, those are very um, emotive issues and they should be, and they should be at the center of all that we do in this work. But it is often not helpful to be making decisions uh, from an emotional place. Uh, We make really sound decisions when we can, you know, take a breath and stop and listen and and look very objectively at what are some of the practical things that we can do right now? What are some of the sort of near-term things we can do? And what are the long-term efforts? And um, in the States, some of those long-term efforts will be focused on, you know, restricting access to, um, to firearms for, you know, specific groups of, of individuals, like perhaps, um, and you know the, the gun issues. You know that's that's not um, our focus as a nonprofit. But um, thankfully, there are people that you know that are working and looking at some of those those legislative solutions, um, particularly you know ages uh, seventeen to twenty four males um, in our country. Um, we we have statistics. We have you know homicide rates and. And we see that that's a, a, a group that we need to focus on. So, so there will be some long-term initiatives like that, but there are some, some very short-term uh, today type things that we can be doing in our communities. And the work of Safe and Sound is really about helping people understand that it takes a whole community, whole child approach mm-hmm. to make sure that we don't have individuals like this one or like our attacker that are falling through so many you know, gaps in, in our system, in our society to, to end up at a day like, you know, December 14th, 2012 in Sandy Hook or, you know, in the community of Uvalde just a few days ago. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's Michelle Gay. She's a co-founder of Safe and Sound Schools. She's a teacher. She's also a mother of a Sandy Hook victim, talking about uh, the organization, how they can help, and how they feel like it's about more than just gun control when it comes to preventing these kinds of shootings. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a new paper in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and it's actually calling us back to attention on the pandemic death toll. Why? 
Well, it says that there were a lot more deaths in BC during the pandemic that actually were not accounted for in the overall count. So the number we were told is not a realistic number, according to this paper. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Kim McGrail, professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. So how was this, and I know you worked on this, so how were these numbers tabulated? How did you come up with this? Yeah, so maybe first thing I would say is that what we're the focus of this paper is um, as much on excess mortality as COVID-specific mortality. So Statistics Canada collects uh, reported death information from provinces across the country, and they used a few years prior to the pandemic to model what we might have expected to see based on population growth and um, age-specific death rates and so on. So they model that to see what we would have expected to see as overall mortality in the absence of the pandemic. And then we look at what provinces and territories actually reported to Statistics Canada for the pandemic period, and the difference between those two numbers is what we call excess mortality, a portion of which would would be um, deaths that are attributed specifically and directly to COVID-19. Okay, and so what did you find with the number of reported COVID-19 deaths? So across the country, we see some pretty wide variations by province in both the overall excess mortality and the proportion of that excess mortality that is attributed to COVID-19. And in the Atlantic provinces, very little of either of those. And in the Western provinces, and particularly Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia, um, both um, uh, well higher excess mortality overall, and in BC, a fairly low proportion of that that's attributed specifically and directly to COVID. So was this just a BC situation, Kim, or did other provinces count the same way? Well, this is part of the reason I was interested in pursuing this paper, is, is to try to understand why we would see these variations. And that is one of the um, reasons that you just mentioned is that provinces have taken different approach to defining what they call a COVID-specific death and even some changes within that over time, over the course of the province, or uh, sorry, over the course of, of the pandemic. I guess for the average person, we would wonder, like, how can there be different ways of counting this? If somebody dies from COVID, they die from COVID. Yeah, it, I mean, it is pretty um tricky in the sense that um, you have to know that somebody had COVID in order to record them as dying. So as we've changed our approaches to testing and that sort of thing over time, some of those um, statistics would fall um, through the cracks. Um, And this is really why I wanted to take the opportunity to step back from the COVID-specific recording and look at excess mortality overall, because that will give us, I think, a, a better picture of what's happening at the broad population level. Right. Were you surprised by what you found? Um, I was not expecting the kind of variation we see in excess mortality across the provinces. Okay, so that I'll take that as a yes. You were surprised by what yeah. you found. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, as a as a researcher, you go in not you know wanting or needing to find one thing or another. But I I, I did I, this part of the reason I wrote the paper is because you did view this variation. And then um, part of what I do in the paper is speculate on a, a number of reasons why we might see some of that variation ranging from uh, additional public health events going on, like the tainted drug supply and mm-hmm. opioid overdose deaths are, are different responses to the pandemic across provinces. Uh, the wider effects of, of COVID and um, delayed health care and delayed diagnoses, canceled surgeries, that sort of thing, 
Um, and of course, there could be some inaccuracy in the way that Statistics Canada does their modeling. What does this tell us about how we should be keeping track of these things, Kim? Uh, well, I I think that it would be great if we could establish some common definitions across provinces because we do want to be able to um, have some confidence and understanding that what we see in BC, how it compares to other provinces. And of course, we also do want to be able to roll this up to understand what's happening across Canada overall, as well as within individual provinces. And honestly, this is less about looking back and poking fingers at what we might have done wrong. It's it's much more about learning from what's happened in the pandemic, because I think we can expect that there's going to be future public health threats, whether that's another heat dome or some other thing where having good statistics and common definitions in place is going to be just to our benefit. Absolutely. Kim, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your interest. That's Kim McGrell from the UBC School of Population and Public Health and the author of a paper in the Canadian Medical Association Journal called Excess Mortality, COVID-19 and Healthcare Systems in Canada. The way we count deaths related to COVID-19, as she has shown, may have resulted in us undercounting the number of people who were impacted by that. Now, still ahead for us, we're going to talk about our other public health emergency, right? The one that's been around for a lot longer, uh, very devastating, and that is our opioid overdose crisis. This announcement from the federal government yesterday, is this actually what BC was looking for? Are we going to make a difference here with these new rules? We'll take that directly to the provincial minister responsible coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, after waiting a long time for the federal government to make a decision, BC has finally got one. But will it make a difference? A difference in a public health crisis that has killed thousands of British Columbians in the last six years and shows no sign of slowing down. So the big announcement yesterday was about allowing BC a three-year pilot project to decriminalize small amounts of certain drugs to fight the opioid overdose epidemic. But BC didn't exactly get everything it was asking for. So the question now is, will this even work? Joining us now to talk about that is Sheila Malcolmson, who is the BC Minister of Mental Health and Addictions and was at that announcement yesterday. Thank you for being here. Morning, Simi. Are, are you happy with what Ottawa has agreed to here? This is a sea change. And for this to be the first time in Canada that people who use drugs are going to be clearly asserted as being inside the healthcare system and not face criminal uh, charges, uh, confiscation of drugs that, that will really be removing the stigma. This is huge. And the police are going to continue to focus on drug traffickers and, and pursue the true crime. Um, it, it really is a sea change. Alone, without us continuing to build up treatment and recovery and harm reduction and prescribed safe supply alone, it doesn't, doesn't save lives. But together with the package of expansion of our substance use treatment and care system, then it can make a huge difference. And, and it really is a big day. Well, that's what I was wondering. How are you going to make sure that law enforcement has the tools necessary to offer those other options to people? Because that's the key here, right? Is that you no longer seize the drugs if you find somebody with two and a half grams or less, but you're supposed to be able to talk to them about treatment options. Well, that has to filter down, right, to every police officer. Yeah, it truly does. I mean, this is the big thing about decriminalization. You know, we've heard that when people are ashamed of their drug use, 
or feel that they have to hide it in order to you know, avoid criminal sanctions. And they are serious. You could lose work or the ability to travel or access to your children. Um, you know, we've heard people, um, you know, somebody talked with me just last night who said, I had half a gram of an illicit drug and I spent nine months in jail. You know, those stories travel. So no wonder sometimes people don't reach out for help. You know, then it's our responsibility as a government to have that help there when they reach out, no question. But our, you know, one of the reasons that we've got a, a implementation period, which is significant, this won't actually take effect until January, because we do need to work with police, um, and we will, and we have been um, anticipating, hoping that we were going to get a yes from the federal minister um, from my application, which I submitted in November. We need to do that serious training training of every police force and every police officer across the entire province in tiny communities so that they now know the the, the proper way, um, the the culturally sensitive way, the trauma-informed way of, of speaking with people who are addicted to substances, um, and then working hand-in-hand with both the health authorities across the province who deliver substance use treatment and recovery services and the amazing frontline providers that we contract with and, and that do volunteer work, working together to get that referral system so that people can get um, respectfully navigated to healthcare supports. Okay, but what about the amount here? Because I know BC had been asking for more than that for an exception, about four and a half grams. You got 2.5, and most police departments will say that they already weren't enforcing that amount. So how is this going to make a big difference? Yeah, so yeah, really good questions. We built a table a year ago of people with lived experience, uh, Indigenous partners, law enforcement, municipalities, research groups. Um, they helped us build our application. 4.5 grams was what um, the evidence that was brought to us said would cover the majority of people who use drugs. Um, and we remain really proud of our application. We recognize that the federal government has the ability to make the decision. This is federal law that we're changing or the application of federal law that we're changing. Um, And it's now just becomes especially important for us to have an extremely robust monitoring system, um, evaluation, and we've got the federal government's commitment that if we can show that that this is uh, recriminalizing people or that um, there are harms associated with having too low a threshold, um, that we'll be able to amend that as well built right into our application, says that 2.5 grams is a floor, not a ceiling. And that'll be part of the police training so that they have the discretion to recognize when someone is, is truly, maybe they're caring for a family member or they're in a remote community where they do the, the, the drug supply, illicit drug supply on which they are medically dependent. They need to have a multi-day supply because they're, they're away from an urban center. That's the kind of discretion and training we are going to be in much more reliant on because of the low threshold that Ottawa chose. Right, but you also wanted five years to try this out. You got three. Is three years going to give the province enough time to find out if this really makes a difference? This is a whole change in thinking. Um, We didn't suggest, you know, we thought that this would be a a permanent change and we didn't know that there would be an end date. Um, But again, this is, uh, this was the federal government's decision to make uh, and uh, and this is a huge, huge change in public policy. It's something that that people with lived experience have been advocating for for decades. Um, so we don't. Um, you know, we're very glad to be to be moving forward, and um, and and we're going to 
be able to measure that this is really going to have an impact on people having the willingness to come forward and and ask their family doctor or um, or their walk-in clinic for for support, and that we will no longer have the terrible epidemic of people using drugs alone and dying alone. That's the majority of people that are falling to overdose, um, having hidden that from their family that they are even struggling with pain management or substance use and dying alone with ever, without ever having thought of walking into an overdose prevention site or, or asking for medication-assisted treatment. And we know that in this climate, um, shame and stigma kills, and that's what we're determined to end. So when does training start then for law enforcement, for police officers? We've been getting ready for this, again, hoping that we were going to get this over the line. Um, ever since we put our application in November 1st, our core planning table has continued to work together, which I'm so grateful for. To have police and people with lived experience and advocates all sitting at the same table has been extremely powerful. And it's a real credit to our public service who's been so committed to this work. Um, so we've been going through the list of Know, what we need to work with with municipalities, what the form of training will be, um, and uh, and we're determined to accelerate this work. Um, and you know, there's a there's a lot. Police called for this in the first place. I don't think we would be this far, um, notwithstanding advocates calling for this for such a long time. Kenya Association of Police Chiefs called for decriminalization, and um, and we know that police want to make this work. They recognize that it will be better um, for for our society, for them to focus on, on drug dealers and drug trafficking, which remains illegal. And, um, and so, so we're, we're starting right away um, with the training program and identifying the work that has to happen to make this work for, for the people that are most vulnerable. Well, thanks for explaining it to us this morning. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Cindy. That's Sheila Malcolmson, who is the BC Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, talking about the announcement about decriminalization. And, you know, I've been saying it all morning, the key to making this work is that point of contact that the person who has drugs makes with, uh, you know, with the police officer, with the with the justice system. And that is if the officer has the information to point them to health and support services, that's what's going to make the difference. So that training that the minister was talking about there, I think, is the key to making this work if it's going to be successful. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. announcement that we heard also from the federal government this week had to do with reforming behavior in the Canadian Armed Forces because that's been a huge topic. Too much harassment, too much abuse, just too many negative things going on there. But how do we change that 
culture. Now, obviously, that's something you know they're going to be working on. But how challenging is it? Well, that's something we're going to talk to our next guest about. Charlotte Duval-Antoine is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, good morning, Charlotte. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Now, how big of a task is this? Is this something that can be tackled within the armed forces, or do we have to start much earlier, do you think? Well, uh, we had to start this process uh, 30 years ago, so you kind of know that it's going to be a huge task to, to kind of finally jumpstart the culture change that we have been uh, waiting for since at least 1989. So the Canadian Armed Forces right now uh, clearly doesn't have the resources and the know-how to do this, so it's going to be a big task that that is going to require resources outside the military itself. What do you mean outside the military? Where? So as Arbor recommended, uh, there's a lot of defense academics uh, that have looked into this and that have uh, recommendations and ideas of how to help the military. Uh, we also have our political class and, and, and government that, that can help. Um, DND, DND is also part of it, uh, the Department of National Defense. Uh, the military is integrated with them. So they are uh, civilians that can actually help the military get it outside of its own head and, and move forward. So you're saying start with the military colleges, but that's kind of not an area that has, have we looked into that yet about what's going on at the military college level? So uh, the last time we looked at the military colleges was uh, around 1998 after the Somalia scandal, uh, where there has been a lot of reforms in terms of granting uh, education to to officers and uh, actually undergraduate um Education became a requirement, but that is the last time that we really talked about this. So um, Arbery is calling for review. I think it's warranted uh, because we have seen a lot of incidents uh, happening out in RMC, uh, and um, there is a problem there. We need to see what's going on and how to remedy that. So start with the military colleges then, and then is that in combination of working with the higher levels, like essentially tackling all of it at once, do you think? Yes, I think that um, the best way to approach it is to attack it in, on multiple fronts, uh, like like a good military operation, right? Um, and, uh, and do pro- like progress everything simultaneously because... If we attack just one problem at a time, what we'll find ourselves doing is create uh, unintended consequences that we will not be able to uh, see early enough and that will be harder to overcome. So so doing everything at the same time, ensuring uh, communications at all levels to move forward on those issues. And we have seen over the past year a problem with the most senior uh, officers in the military, but it's a, it's a problem that goes from uh, the most senior general to the most junior private. You're, that's right. Tackling the whole thing is going to be very challenging. Charlotte, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You too. That's Charlotte Duval, Antoine, who's a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, talking about reforming Canadian military colleges as a way to one of the ways in which to tackle the reformation of the Canadian Armed Forces and the behavior that goes on inside of it. This is Mornings with Simi.
With the floods that wreaked havoc in our province last year, you just knew that those floods were going to be studied to see how they had happened, what had impacted them, could they happen again? And we've talked a lot about climate change playing a role in weather patterns and how that has certainly had an impact. But there are engineers as well who say, listen, we need to look at more than that. What about the issue of logging? Does that create conditions for flooding as well? Well, that is something that our next guest has looked into. Ben Parfit is with us, policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Simi. So you were looking into what can contribute to the frequency of floods. What did you find? Well, I spoke to uh, a number of experts in the field, uh, in their field, so engineers, geoscientists, uh, and hydrologists, and, and pretty much to a person, uh, all of them said that while we should be concerned about climate change, we also need to be looking at, at other factors that uh, contributed to the uh, severity of events uh, last year. Um, while it's unquestionable that there was a heck of a lot of rain uh, over two days in mid-November, it's actually not that far out of the historical norm for pineapple expresses or atmospheric rivers. Uh, and yet we saw a tremendous amount of damage last year. Um, it looks like at least some of that damage uh, can be uh, directly attributed to uh, a, a few different things. Uh, one um, is the tremendous area of land that was burned in wildfires in some key watersheds, which without question uh, appears to have elevated um, landslide and mudslide risks along highway corridors. Uh, and that contributed to extremely high water levels uh, in some areas, particularly in the Merritt area. And then the other thing, which is, you know, one of the, the, the most tragic outcomes of, of this event was um, the uh, devastating landslide on the uh, Duffy Lake Road uh, last year, which, which killed five people. And two of the engineers that I spoke to said that that landslide was uh, essentially a foreseeable and preventable event. That's the words of one of the engineers I spoke to, because the landslide was triggered um, at a old logging road uh, above the highway. And um, as that logging road slowly deteriorated over time and changed water directions, when we got those intense rains uh, in mid-November last year, uh, it set up the conditions for that road to fail uh, with devastating and deadly consequences for the people below. Okay, so then are there things that these engineers also point out that we should be doing to prevent this from happening? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's an incredible uh, network of, of uh, main uh, logging roads and secondary logging roads and tertiary logging roads in the province. Uh, you know, you could circle the globe about seven times with the amount of such roads that we have in British Columbia. Um, if those roads happen to be located above highway corridors, obviously that's something we need to be concerned about. Uh, so the engineers that I spoke to, um, you know, point out that much work needs to be done to uh, deactivate these roads. And that involves physical work of cutting trenches across the roads, uh, pulling back a lot of the fill, doing a lot of these things. That costs money. Uh, and um, if in the past, and it has happened frequently in the past, that those roads are not properly put back to bed by the logging industry. They effectively become a liability on the land base that really falls to the, to the government itself to deal with. Uh, and the engineers I spoke to point out that if you go back to the 1990s in this province, 
the government was spending hundreds of millions of dollars through something called Forest Renewal BC, which was a crown corporation created by the provincial government. Uh, The corporation operated with money collected from the logging industry, and it channeled it into various projects, including watershed restoration projects, which involved in many cases fixing these deactivated roads. So, or fixing the roads so that they would be properly deactivated. Uh, Millions and millions of dollars spent, great achievements made during that time. And the engineers I spoke to said, that's the kind of thing that we need to reinstitute in this province and that we should be looking at prioritizing areas for um, being fixed up, um, concentrating in particular on highway corridors. Okay, we should be, but are we? Well, <laughs> that's that's the question, uh, the big question, and and the answer, sadly, is is that we're not, or we're not doing nearly enough of it. Um, you know, some of the uh, reports that I looked at shows that the government um, has been told very directly in years past that. Um, incidents of, in, you know, incredible numbers of, of landslides uh, being triggered in heavily logged watersheds um, undoubtedly are linked to the presence of roads that were not properly deactivated. So the engineers I spoke to say, you know, we need to step up uh, the work in, in deactivating these roads. And, and we really, really need to concentrate on areas where uh, people may be uh, uh, vulnerable. Is this something like, Ben, how do we do this in a way that, listen, if you're going to log this area, then you are also responsible for maintaining the area. Like, is that something that doesn't happen now? It, it's not happening to to the degree it should. And and the the other thing that um, the people I spoke to point out is that the government uh, really needs to uh, uh, embrace the idea that you know, it is uh, in charge of activities on crown lands, and it needs to be looking very, very carefully at, at just how much industrial activity it permits in um, in in key watersheds. Uh, one of the people I spoke to uh, is um, a hydrological engineer at the University of British Columbia, Eunice Alila, and, and in his words, he believes British Columbians are in for a hell of a ride for decades to come. Uh, and that's because there has simply been uh, too much logging, too much uh, uh, industrial activities concentrated in in watersheds uh, where communities may be vulnerable. Um, as, a, as an example, you know, it was only a few years ago that we had severe uh, flooding uh, in the Grand Forks area. Um, the watersheds uh, above Grand Forks um, uh, have been heavily, heavily logged, uh, and the provincial government has now been named uh, in a class action suit um, because uh, local residents who, who lost their homes uh, alleged that the uh, logging activities, the road activities, all of the industrial development in those watersheds uh, created conditions for the horrendous flooding that occurred there. I believe it was in uh, 2018. Right. So we sound like we still have a lot of work to do here. And yet we talk a lot about climate change, though. Ben, I feel like this is being overlooked. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the, the uh, flooding, uh, both um, the Premier and the Public uh, Safety Minister, you know, were, were very, very quick to name the culprit and frame this as, as a climate uh, a change catastrophe. And I think we really need to look much more closely um, at, at what happened. Um, you know, one of the things that is recommended in, in the work that I've done uh, today is that we need to be doing what the government was told 12 years ago. We need to dramatically increase the number of people that are working at the Provincial River Forecast Centre. Uh, the government was told to do so 12 years ago. It hasn't done that. And that uh, critically important frontline agency really needs to be taking into account things like wildfires, uh, that are occurring in watersheds and factoring that into their models and their early warning systems. And they need to be doing a much better job of looking at uh, snowpacks that have mm-hmm. built up in watersheds that, that could become extremely vulnerable in the event of heavy rains like the rains we saw last year. All right, Ben, thanks so much for talking to us about this. Simi, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate your time. That's Ben Parfit, policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, where they have been looking into the impact of logging and how that helps to also sometimes create the conditions for flooding. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What I love about doing our Keep It Local series is that it gives us all an opportunity to find different ways to support local farms. And you know what? would love to profile some of those local farms too. So if you are a farm owner or if you know of a great local farm that you visit and you think they've got some amazing product, please tell me about it so we can feature them during our series. Simi at cknw.com. Today, we're going to talk about dairy farms. Dairy industry, integral part of BC, of course, dairy farms have, well, suffered a lot over the past year with all of the different things, the wildfire, the floods, you name it. So we thought, let's check in on the industry. Let's find out how we can support them. Our guest is Sarah Sachi, who's the vice chair of the BC Dairy Association. Also, Sarah is a dairy farmer in Rosedale. Sarah, thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. So first off, how is your farm doing? Uh, my farm is, we're slugging it out here. We're about three weeks behind what we normally would be on our planting season this year because we've had such a cold, um, wet spring. So actually, I think my husband is going to plant the last of our corn crop today, which, I fingers crossed, it's really muddy out there. Um, but he's doing his best to get it in and, and to grow feed for our cows for this fall. Oh boy, okay. It's always something though, isn't it, Sarah, when you have a farm? It's starting to feel like that, you know, it's been such a crazy time through the pandemic and then all the things we had happen with the flood. Um, we had fires in a lot of our farms uh, or near them in, in the summertime in the Okanagan because we have farms throughout the province. Uh, there's about 470 dairy farms in BC and uh, yeah, it just seems ongoing, but on top of the regular uh, uh, stuff of being a dairy farmer, that's the, the day-to-day commitment that's part of it, but we really... Uh, had a long couple of years here. I'll bet, I'll bet, especially with the flooding in the Fraser Valley uh, that we saw in other parts of the province last fall. How are dairy farms recovering? I think that uh, the support from the community has been strong. We've seen our farms really in terms of their farm operations spring back fairly successfully, um, but we're still monitoring. Like there's a lot of equipment that we don't use uh, 
all of the time. We would use it seasonally, like I've just mentioned, for planting crops or doing things like that. So I think farms that were in the flood area are still assessing what their damage was, are still obviously working to rebuild their equipment. But in terms of their milk production, they've been able to get back um, into that much quicker, honestly, than I might have expected. Really? they're they're doing well and uh, have been able to continue supplying food for British Columbians, so that's been neat. But the the trying to rebuild the the lives that uh, like the damage to their homes and to all of their things and all of that is going to be a long process for sure. And I know that people, I think British Columbians in particular, we learned you know, over the past year, how vital our local farms are, if we didn't already know, right? Some of us already knew this. Uh, but I know that a lot of people want to help. They want to kind of help individual farmers and farms, you know, get back up and running. So Sarah, what can we do? I think for us, the the kind of resurgence of support for what we do has really been valuable, like feeling like we can contribute something positive to our communities, that people support the idea of local food and being, you know, purchasing, making those purchasing decisions when they go in the grocery store, um, looking for the blue cow. Today's World Milk Day, so it's a special day for us as dairy farmers. Um, And all the milk in Canada is, for the most part, um, produced by Canadian farmers and here in BC. So if you look for those products and and take an interest in what it is that we do. Um, as we grow to be a diminishing number of the population, I think farmers are about 2% of the population. So it really means something to us when people take interest like you're doing with your show or when they're shopping in the grocery store and look at, at what it is that we do and uh, just try to keep some kind of a relationship back with the farm. Okay, you said uh, diminishing number there. So does that mean that people are not going into dairy farming? I think into all types of farming, like the new census data just came out. I think the average age of farmers in Canada now is 56. I'm really uh, excited that the the number of women farmers in BC went up in the census data. There's about 40% of uh, people reporting as farmers in BC are women. Um, So I think that's a positive thing. But it's getting, uh, I don't know, the lifestyle doesn't always mesh with <laughs> it's a commitment we we fully dedicate ourselves to uh producing food and being part of this lifestyle and that that means giving up some things also and i think just making it attractive to the next generation of people and finding ways to uh modernize the business structures and and right. those types of things are are coming our way for sure i i feel like there is definitely a desire too on the part of the consumer to get even closer right, to the dairy yep. industry in terms of like they would love to be able to visit a farm, buy the milk directly from a farm or, you know, have a place that they can go to to be really absolutely local on that. Is that something that the dairy industry is kind of trending towards? Yeah, there's more and more of that showing up in our province. I have a good friend based in Agassiz who's opened a creamery there and the amount of support that she's received at Creekside Creamery um, from people driving out um, from Vancouver as like a day trip and visiting her farm and being able to have tours. She does tours and you can buy her cheese. And there's a lot of facilities like that throughout the Fraser Valley because people are starting to show that that's something they would like to do, like you say. Um, so they're getting the opportunity to visit the farm, to look at the products and actually take something home with them. They love that. But there's also the regular consumer demand as well that comes through the, the regular grocery store. And all of that is local as well, for the most part. So it's we've got something for most people. See, I love that. I love the idea of going out and visiting a farm and getting that product locally. So if yeah. people want to go to the store as well, Sarah, so you mentioned the blue cow, but how do we make sure what we're, what we're buying is local, is from BC? Um, 
In terms of BC specific, um, it's harder to do. There are products that that will say that they're BC specific, but we work a lot with our partners in the in the West. So in most cases, it would be Western if you see the blue cow, but it depends on the, I mean, you have to read the packaging and look at it. Um, we're not responsible as farmers for the processing of our products, right. um, but we do sell our milk to processors who then produce their products where their facilities are and distribute them throughout grocery stores. Have you felt the love from people? Do you know the people who are kind of pitching in? <laughs> I think that it would have been impossible not to with what we've had happen through the fall. Like it was just unreal to see the support from the community, the types of groups and individuals that helped. And it's just been really positive because it can be, I mean, agriculture struggles uh, across the board with mental health challenges recently with a lot of things and it's felt kind of I don't know there's been some negative feeling to like oh uh, you know we're kind of in this lifestyle we don't know if people connect with us and I think just seeing the absolute outpouring of generosity of kindness of support for our industry has felt really good and uh, we hope to uphold the standards that people expect of us and to be the kind of farmers that British Columbians want to support so I think it's great that the connections are being built and we're getting the opportunity to uh, to be more connected with the people who are buying our products, for sure. We'll love it. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And good luck with the planting today. That's Sarah Satchi's Vice Chair of the BC Dairy Association, also a dairy farmer in Rosedale. And remember, keep it local wherever you can.